the final piece of the Last Supper series that we've had. It is the last of the Last Supper, all right? And so we had, we took about a, a four weeks leading into Easter. We got ourselves sort of prepared for the Easter moment. John 13 is where we were focusing. Then we had the Easter expression, and we just celebrated kind of a, an interpretation of that event with music, and we just wanted to honor what the Lord was doing. And then last week, we sort of worked behind that, and now we're going to complete this. Uh, and John 14 is where we're focusing on, and, and in that first verse that we're going to look at here, you can see, you know, a lot of times this passage, by the way, which is a fairly famous passage, it's one of the more uh, read passages of Scripture in the New Testament, certainly John 14, because it really is Jesus' statement about who he said he was. It's right in here. We often forget that the 14th chapter of John uh, was something that was a part of that discussion that took place in the upper room during the Last Supper. It, the context of what we're going to look at is indeed uh, that same supper where Jesus washed the feet and where he talked to the disciples and gave them lessons and talked about Judas and there was Peter. All that interaction was taking place. And a lot of times we forget that this is also something that happened. It's part of what Jesus says after Judas has left. And so we're just going to, again, John 14, 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And we mentioned that when Jesus said these words, he was looking into the eyes of the 11 men who were remaining in the room, and they were shaken men. Jesus knew that his uh, hour, we're using the language of the scriptures here, but he knew that his hour was at hand, that the time of his glory had come, that his enemies, the minions of hell, as it were, as well, were circling him like vultures waiting for a body to die. I mean, there was this imminent sense that his end was near and that he was uh, himself prepared to take the walk that he was born to, born to do. And this is the backdrop. Jesus also knew a couple of other things. He knew that his own familiar friend, Judas, had lifted up his heel against him, as it were, and that even as he was talking and saying these words in John 14, that, that Judas was on his way to, to meeting with the group of men this, that he was going to lead with a torch at night to a garden place that he knew Jesus would be at. Jesus was aware of Judas's plan. Jesus was also aware of where uh, Judas was going to take them because it was a place where they, had, they went to pray and where the disciples had often gone. But it was sort of a, a semi-secret place. Not everybody knew exactly where they would gather. It was something that they did as a group. And so Jesus knew, knowing that Judas was on his way, even in the room, chose not to stop him. I mean, he could have said to all the disciples, you know, let's stop him now. He's about to betray, betray me. Uh, Jesus also knew that Judas was going to lead them to the garden. He could have gone to a different place, but he didn't. And I think it's really important for us to note that Jesus chooses to let this thing play out. He understands that it's part of a plan that the Father has for him, that he is meant to die in our place. That this is part of what it meant when, when John, who the initiator, John, they call him the Baptist in the scriptures, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was something about him becoming the ultimate sacrifice, the giving of his own life, God giving his own son that we might live. It's about John 3, 16, and, and we could spend a lot of time just sitting with that. Suffice to say, Jesus chose 
to move with it. No, in fact, I put this, and this is a pretty large piece here in your handout, from one of my favorite authors named Calvin Miller. And Calvin Miller writes this, and it just it kind of captured in my mind the essence of what Jesus did here. And it says that one thing I most admire, Miller says, about Jesus is that he was able to see the big purposes of God and the seemingly little things that were occurring. He knew, for example, that it was God's will for him to die. And during the last few fleeting hours of his life, he could see that what Judas was doing was actually part of an unfolding cosmic drama. And herein lies the greatness of Jesus. He put the little pieces of life together as if he were assembling the flagstone walkway down which he would shortly walk. Stone by stone, he laid his own way. I love that phrase. Stone by stone, he laid his own way into the center of the will of God. So this is why he did not say, stop that man. He's going to betray me. He saw that Judas's treachery, while not admirable, was just another stone in the pavement of the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow, the way of the cross. Jesus held in his mind a set of blueprints for human redemption, saving of the human race. And what's interesting is, is Miller connects his occupation, or at least his trade, with his mission. He says, you know, he was a carpenter, and he was probably used to reading building plans. And he had taken these plans out of the inner sanctum of his heart. And Jesus had studied them in the wilderness and in his private prayer. And throughout his long ministry, he examined and re-examined these plans. In Gethsemane, the garden, he studied them yet one more time. There, in the clear light of all he was asked to do, he said to the Father, Father God, I, I find your plan heavy to be borne. Nevertheless, let this cup pass from me. But I pray, if I must drink the cup, then... Let me drink it from the very bottom all the way. Drain it completely. I find your, heavy, your plans heavy, but if I must bear them, strengthen me to carry everything. And the point being that Jesus chose to walk into the storm. And that's very important as we, we look at what he's saying here right before he heads into the eye of it, that he's, he has one, a few more things to say to his disciples. And what's also something worth noting here is that when he starts that, by the very words that he says, let now your heart be troubled, is a clue to something, isn't it? I mean, the fact is that you go back and you see it in this passage, it's pretty obvious that the reason he says, don't let your heart be troubled, is because he knew as he looked at them. Just like when you look in someone's eyes and they sense something ominous or unsettling or something that's about to rock their world. I have something to tell you. And there, are, there have been moments, and I'm sure you can relate to this, where either it's happened to you or you've said something and you knew it was going to affect someone. And Jesus had said things that night that these were men, these were strong men, but their world was being rocked. He was saying things like, I'm going to be leaving you and you're not going to know me again in the way that you've known me. He's saying things like, I'm going to die, and uh, they're going to take me and crucify me. Um, uh, he, he's saying things that one of you is going to betray me, and in fact, it's already in your heart. He said that Peter, yes, even you, the one that they had recognized to be the strong one, the man of resolve among them, their leader, that you were going to, you're going to deny me not once, not twice. You're going to deny me three times before this night is through, and that means there's going to be an emphatic break with me that you're going to make. You're going to deny me. And then he said, in fact, all of you are going to forsake me. And, and that, that, those, when Jesus said things 
like that, when he said things, there was, tr- it was truth, and it scared them, and they were afraid, and, they're, and they were shaken, and they were disturbed and bothered by these words. And in fact, you've got to understand that they had invested everything into Jesus. Their dream- they could see their dreams they're melting away before their eyes. I mean, just days before, they had come in with Jesus in this very triumphant fashion. Uh, it wasn't like Jesus had planned this. It wasn't like there were preparations made, like he was running for office and they had set up the whole place. No, when he came in, there was a clamor about who he was. And the city of Jerusalem was, was filled with this expectation that Jesus would make this announcement that he was Messiah. He was going to use these, these, his power to finally set things in place. And the buzz filled the air, and they had joined with it. They had attached themselves. I mean, they had left, they had left everything behind them. They had broken, think about it, they, they quit their jobs, as it were, left their families for large periods of time to, and attached themselves to Jesus. They had believed in him. They had dreams. They had plans. In fact, a lot of their arguing was around the idea that when Jesus sets things up, who's going to be in what place in his cabinet, as it were. Right? There was this, this feeling there that he's about to do it. And now he's saying things to them that not only do not make sense, they sound completely opposite. In fact, it's, it's like he's saying, whatever you think is going to happen, you need to throw that out the window because this thing is about to melt down. And he can see in their eyes fear. And he says to them, do not let your heart be shaken by what I've basically just said to you, what I've said to you. Don't do that. And then he utters two phrases. By the way, there's not a verse like this in the whole, really the whole scripture. It's a magnificent verse. He says, one, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. One, a declaration, one, an invitation. I was thinking about this phrase, you believe in God. And because I see two things there. I see the Lord saying, one, believe, it, believe in God. And that's a word for all of us still today. Don't ever think for a moment, Jesus says, that we're just here by accident. That life is devoid of meaning. That Jesus taught us that there is not only a God, but that God is active and cares. And Jesus said that you're not simply a, basically a, 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 you know, a cosmic accident tragedy that has no real meaning. He says, believe in God. Believe that there is God who has set things in place. Believe that, that it, and I'm using his language here, but he is basically telling us that this world as we know it is but a sliver of God's vast domain, that, that this is but, this earth is but a room in the house, if you will. You read the language down, that there is a meaning in this ordered and mathematical universe that we have meaning, that we count, that we matter to God, that our life matters. I mean, to, to, and I think really in the heart of every human being, there is a, a yearning, uh, uh, there's something lurks within us at the deepest levels, even those who don't even truly, have not, not even really fully embraced, you know, Jesus, there is this yearning to, to want to know that our life matters. And, and I think it, there's a reason why people lift up their eyes. You know, there's something about the idea of, of looking heavenward, lifting, looking skyward. I mean, for generations, people have lifted up their eyes into the stars and oftentimes thought about who we were. And, and Jesus said, believe in God. 
Believe that God set this beautiful place into being. At, at, quiet your soul and listen, because you'll hear God. It's one of the reasons why I love the beauty of creation. It's why, periodically, it's really good for us to sit by the ocean. Periodically, it's really good for us to take a walk and to just be in a garden. Or to, you know, I, I'll tell you, one of the things I love to do is I love to... Uh, I love to go to Yosemite and to the Sierras. Um, it's funny, I mean, uh, some of you know that's, that's become one of my main hobbies. I go backpacking. I'm, the, I, I was, I'm a city boy. I was born here, raised here. Uh, I, the last thing I had in my mind when I was in my 20s was I was going to go out in the wilderness somewhere with some guys. And, and, and yet, in my late 20s, somebody in the church actually introduced me to, to going out. And one of the things that that I really enjoyed about it was, I, honestly, I, I, was, I was shocked by the, the beauty of the creation in a new way. And there were moments there where I would, would just be alone with God and sitting on a mountain and looking, looking at just the sky and the, and the, the trees and, and, the, and the, just the, the ferocity. And it, I could understand the Psalms better sitting by the lake and the waters and watching the stream go. I understood the language of the Psalms because they would always talk about how, look at the artwork of God and let it lift your soul towards heaven. And there's something about the beauty of nature that testifies of the glory of God. It's like, it's the best art ever. And we were put here to enjoy it. But you know what? Not just to enjoy it, but to let it open up our soul to God. You know, you think about it when you walk through a garden or you... A lot of times when you're just sitting around something place, it's beautiful, and I know insects are there and all that stuff is there, but, you know, still, I think we're drawn in, the, in those places. You know, there's something about it. There's a, it's like we fit there, and it's really kind of easy to start turning your heart to God, towards God. There's an opening up. Like, to me, a few things, there's a couple of things that do that. To, this is my, my take, I, but I do believe the beauty of creation is one of the things that, that breaks our defenses down towards God. I also feel like music does that, too. There's something about the way we're made. I don't know why human beings are we're, we're made in the image of God, even in our brokenness. And there's something about it, something about the way God constructed our soul, that we are drawn to things, and things open us up in different ways. And, and so, I think, anyway, I was, the reason I was saying that was because I, I, you know, periodically we'll go up in the mountains, and one of my, I'll tell people, and they, as they roll their eyes at me, I'm going to hike till I'm 70, you know, I say to them. And I say, John Muir is my inspiration, right? I say, he did it into his 70s. And I was reading about John Muir because his life fascinates me. He's an, many of us have heard of John Muir. If you go to Yosemite, you always hear about John Muir, and, and, and he was a conservationist, a naturalist, and this guy, man, he was amazing, just hiked everywhere. But I was reading about his life. In fact, I was reading about it, Unintentionally, by the way, because the book wasn't actually about John Muir's life. It's called the, this book was called the, Weather, the Weathering Grace of God by a guy named Ken Geyer. And one of the things that happened is in, in one of the chapters, he actually starts talking about John Muir and about how, and I didn't know this, but he said, you know, John Muir was actually raised in a Christian home, and, um, but it was, a, it was a, a kind of a Calvinist Reformed home, and so it was kind of, there was a... I'm not saying it's across the board, but in his case, it was, it was kind of rule-based. The guy was also a genius. 
uh, by Chaitanya. He writes it. Okay. So I don't know. There were no, there were no footnotes. But by age 11, John Muir had memorized the entire New Testament. And three-fourths of the Old Testament. Even if that's only half true, it's amazing. <laughs> and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, I had, I've had a couple of people come up to me and say, hey, you know, I know, I, I, I actually did, I read that. And I had, I had one person Saturday night come up to me and says, you know, no, no, that's, that's actually fairly accurate. He had this photographic memory. And he was, he was rigidly co compelled to memorize scripture. And uh, I had another person say, yeah, I knew his, I mean, it's amazing, his stories, even, I, I had another I knew his, I, I went to school with his grandson, and the guy had a photographic memory. He's telling me all about his photo. And I said, wow, that's, that's really cool. But it, you know what, Don, I mean, one of the things that we also know about Muir, and again, I'm, I'm stay, I'll, we'll come back home here, but one of the things he said, one of the things he said was that he, as the years went by, because of the, the hard and humorless version of Christianity that he was raised around, that eventually he, 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 he moved a bit away from it. He moved away from it because there was a lack of joy and life in it. And I thought that's a lot of implications for, for us. Think about it. He knew, oh, he knew all kinds. He knew the scriptures. But because of the way that it was modeled out, the lack of, of love and life and, and the rigidity and the hardness of it, 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 it damaged him. And that, that alone, there's something there. But one of the things that never left him was the when he went out into the mountains, it, he would be drawn back to his roots, and you would hear it in his writing. And there was this one letter that I was reading about, because one of the phrases he liked to use, he would talk about the, how nature was the manuscript of God. And he got that from a poem. The poem actually was from Longfellow. But let me show you a letter that he wrote. Um, to He says, for the last two or three months, he says, and we're putting it up there for you. He says, I have worked incessantly among the most remote and undiscovered of the deep canyons of this Pierce Basin, finding many a mountain page glorious with the writing of God in characters that any earnest eye could read. I think that's so cool. But I've, I've, I've seen many a mountain page glorious with the writing of God in characters that any earnest eye could read. This idea that nature, it's really psalm, it's that the creation testifies to the writing of God, the glory of God. In Psalm 19.1, you know that the, it, the heavens declare the handiwork of God, the glory of God. The sky above, the firmament, reveals his um, craftsmanship and artistry. And, and I just, there's something about, see, nature is designed to lead us and to remind us of a powerful, loving, creative God who is a master artist. And one of the, listen, one of the reasons we love to create things, however that looks in our lives, might be an art piece, it might be a poem, it might be a writing, it might be a project we're working on, it might be a garden we're working on, it might be the way we organize a room, it might be the way that we create something else. I, where did that come from? Where is that? Is it not a picture of the God who created us? Jesus says, believe in God. Go back to that verse. Believe in God. You believe in God, Jesus says, but don't stop there. Believe also in me. It's like you've done right. He remember, he's talking to his disciples. Literally, he's telling them, remember what I've taught you. I know you believe in God and remember what I've taught you about who I am, about what I've come to do. And it's almost like I, I see him 
see him staring at them and saying, I have not, now, now look at me, I, I have not led you falsely somewhere, I've not attempted to manipulate you and deceive you, I've not, it's not been my desire to fill your head with false promises and empty dreams. He says, you need to believe in, that God is at work here in me. And that what I'm about to do, although it will not make sense to you, it is something that God is doing that is going to change everything. You must believe this. I'm telling you, this is not the end, that there is more. Notice what he says. He says, because in my Father's house, there are many mansions. That's a, a, a word there, are many dwelling places. It's almost like he's saying, in my Father's universe, there are many dwelling places, and I'm going to pre prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is not the end. I will come again. Death, one, that's a reference to his death and his rising. It's a reference to his leaving and his coming by spirit. It's a reference to his meeting us when we die. It's a reference to his second coming. There's so much, I will come again, means. But then he doesn't stop there. Notice verse 4. It says that he says, and where I go to the Father, you know. And then as he's looking at them, he says, and the way you know. And I'm sure in that moment, because it's pretty clear here, that they were all going, we don't know what you're talking about, right? This does not make sense to us at all. What do you mean? The way we know, where you're going, you know. Finally, Thomas, who, and thank the Lord for Thomas, because he's called, oh, oftentimes they call him, oh, he's doubting Thomas because of what happens afterwards. But I'm going to tell you, Thomas is a sincere, truthful man who wasn't afraid to ask a question. And he says, I don't know. What do you mean? Where are you going? And what way? And you know what? Thomas the Magnificent, who, who I love him because he will not, if you can put it this way, he, he will not simply uh, express something that he doesn't believe. He needs to know. And he says, Lord, we, look at it, you can say it, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. We have no idea what you're talking. He just bursts out, this honest man who would not pretend to have a faith that he did not possess. We do not know where you are going. And he did not pretend to have a knowledge that he lacked. And thank the Lord for his question. Thank the Lord for his willingness to ask what he did not know. Because it gives rise to a verse, verse 6, that is unlike any other. It is the statement of who Jesus said he was. Without the question of Thomas, there would have never been the answer of Jesus. So for that, we are grateful. What does Jesus say? Thomas, listen to me. I am the way. You want to know the way? I am the way. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Not a way, not a truth, not a life. And if you really want to know the Father God, if you want to come to God, you, can, you cannot, Jesus, look, listen, he says, and no man can come to the Father, you cannot come to God except through me. And th listen, Jesus says that without apology or qualification. He just lays this out there for us to either receive or reject. Now, I can tell you that everything depends on how we answer what he says he was. Are we willing to embrace it? I have embraced it. I have embraced who he said he was. 
I, I have come to believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he is indeed the resurrection and the life, that death could not hold him, and because he lives, we can live as well. I want to I suggest something, that part of let not your heart be troubled can only happen if we are willing to understand that he is who he says he was. So I'll, I'll close it in this way, and we'll call this our closing thoughts. That in the first sense, and I'll just quickly refer to this one, that our natural world is as Longfellow put it, not Shakespeare, which is in the notes, but Longfellow wrote that. As he put it, really is the, the manuscript of God, a testimony to God's handiwork and artistry, and it's not intended um, to be worshipped, but to be loved and appreciated and cared for. The, the creation is designed, listen, to draw us to the creator. But, but secondly, Jesus makes it clear he says it, that the only way to the Father is through him. Now, now what, what, what that means is if we want people to get to the Father, then we are going to have to be open to being about the Father's business and introduce people to him. And so may God give us grace and wisdom. Again, I go back to Muir. I go back to the version of Christianity that actually hurt him. And I'm thinking, Lord, help us to model the life and love of God. And I say us, I mean those who would follow him, who would claim to represent his heart. And I know none of us ever do this completely right. I get that. It's like David said, my sins are ever before me. I understand that. At the same token, to follow Jesus, and to, is to, if it's done properly, has to have with it a willingness to ask others to follow along. And in so doing, it means God needs to fill us with grace and wisdom. And, and, and by his grace, we are to commit ourselves to trying to live a life that speaks of that life, that has something in it of his love and of a quality that represents his heart. In other words, it can't just be something we spout off or even memorize. It has to be something that flows out of our heart that's genuine. That when, and people know. People know when it's real. They can feel it. And, and God cares about us being authentic. That's what I love about, one of the things I love about Thomas here is that there was an authenticity. He didn't know, so he asked. And because he asked, we get the blessing of an answer that would have never come if someone wasn't willing to say, you know, I don't understand. That honesty that brings credibility. We don't have the answers to everything, but we can say, come and follow me as I follow him. He's real. And you know what? And lastly, I'll put it this way, that as followers of Jesus, I think what this is reminding us is that we are to vibrantly embrace the gift of life. And I mean vibrantly, because it's not the end. We, Jesus says, don't ever think this is all there is. Don't ever be limited by purely an earthbound perception of reality. Don't ever do that. Look at me, he says. Listen to me. I am going. This is not the end. It is not simply about a life coming to an end. It's about a life that is going beyond this life. It's about something that is yet to be. You must understand, I am not selling you a pipe dream. Do not allow yourselves to be troubled by what you cannot understand. Get, he's saying to them, get your eyes off of an earthbound perception and lift it up and see it. See that God is on the move, that God is real. And you know why that matters? Because if God, if God, if God is saying what he did is actually what, is reality, then because Jesus lives, it means we live. And that means this life actually means a whole lot. Because if this is all there is, then what's the point of it all? And I get that from people. 
And I go, I'm with you. And I'm not even going to imagine because I see a whole lot of stuff out there that breaks my heart and I don't see it getting any better. But I see Jesus saying, don't ever lose your heart. Remember this. Live this life well for me between the now and the then, but don't ever forget that there is something more. Don't ever forget that there is something more. And I think none of us really know, and I, lo I love life. I'm thankful for the gift of life. I, I know that someday all of us will have that final box in our life. Remember the calendar? One of those days, one of those days marks the beginning, and one of those days will mark the end, and there won't be another one for us. Between now and then, wherever it is, and I don't know it, we have a life to live as one who is following one who said death is not the end. Follow me. That's a great, you know what that means? We are to contend for things in our life. Because we're going somewhere, growth matters, love matters, life matters, commitment matters, how we treat people matters, how we're listening for God, how we're working through things, how we're getting better. We're on a journey. It's not an end game. It's a beginning of something even yet to, there are chapters yet to be written. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's what Jesus said. And Lord, I thank you for this. I thank you for the great hope that we are anchored in. And even now, Lord, as we bring this to a point of closure, as we, as we are sitting with the, this, this series and this passage of Scripture, this great, amazing testimony, Lord, we're thinking about what it means to believe in God and how, the, how this world of ours testifies. Really, the beauty of creation testifies to your reality. And at the same time, Lord, you invite us to draw closer to you, to know you in your Son, to know you as the Son, to, uh, to embrace you in your brokenness that we may embrace you in your life. And I, I ask, Lord, that you will continue to remind us that there is a hope that goes beyond just living out our days, that there is ultimately a day when we will move into a day without end. And between the now and the then, help us, Lord, to contend for growth, improvement, for becoming more like you in what we say and what we do. Help us to live increasingly in alignment, Lord, with what we profess. And also, Lord, I ask, if possible, Give us the ability to live with a greater degree of sincerity and integrity in our own lives at the same token, Lord, not to model out a, a joyless version of the Christian life that is incapable of inspiring anyone to want to follow. We've been given a great privilege and a great task. Help us to draw near to you in the days ahead, Lord, the days of our lives. I ask for your blessing. Bless our time of giving as we close out as a people this service and this closing song which is given to underscore everything that we've talked about here. And so I ask for this blessing in the name of Jesus. We pray together. Amen, God. Let it be.